This audio recording is of our regular Sunday service, April 29th, 2018, at Restoration Road Church in Snohomish, Washington. The speaker is Sam Ford. More information can be found at rdchurch.com. Acts of the Apostles, chapter 1, beginning with verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach, until the day he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during forty days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This is God's word. Praise be to God. May I have a seat. I am super excited to be beginning this series. Uh, haven't obviously preached through Acts before, so if you're new with us, we go straight through books of the Bible and we're in the book Acts, so it's going to be pretty rad. But if you bow with me, I'm going to pray so that I don't mess it up and I get out of the Holy Spirit's way. So pray with me if you would. Father God, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that you have loved us and you have done everything necessary to redeem us and bring us back into relationship with you. Though we were broken and weak and rebellious, Lord, you grabbed us by the back of the shirt collar and you said, I'm going to love you. And we praise you for that. And you've given us your Holy Spirit. And Holy Spirit, I pray this morning you'll move me out of the way, that you will reveal to us the heart and the mentality of these early believers, a mentality that I believe we're supposed to share if we share in the same Spirit, and I believe we do. So Holy Spirit, move me out of the way this morning. Speak the words that you need to speak, words of conviction, words of comfort, words of inspiration, encouragement, instruction, whatever is necessary, Father, for those who have been gathered here this morning. But we praise you that you have not left everything a mystery, but you revealed much to us in your word. And I pray you will teach us this morning about yourself and about ourselves and our role in this world. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Well, we are, uh, as I said, beginning a series that's going to be called, or is called, I guess, Witness. And it, it is about the um, Acts of the Apostles. That is probably the title in your Bible. And this sermon is a little bit of an intro, and it will kind of set the stage for where we're going. 
Acts is uh, the second longest book in the New Testament. It is second only to the book of Luke, the gospel of Luke, who is the author of both. In fact, the Acts of the Apostles, whether you know or not, is the sequel to the Gospel of Luke. It is the second volume in a two-volume set that Luke wrote on very long scrolls. It's likely he, because they're such long books, that he used the maximum scroll size possible, which at that time was probably 30, 35 feet. So you can imagine two gigantic scrolls being trucked around by Dr. Luke. And that's who he is. Uh, He is a doctor, a highly educated Gentile, uh, who had become a believer after the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus. And he served as a companion of the Apostle Paul, as you will read throughout the book of Acts on his different missionary journeys. Now, sometime before, and again, scholars disagree a little bit exactly when, but sometimes before the great Roman persecution that we hinted at or talked about a lot when we went through First Peter, um, on behalf of some influential Christian, high-class Christian, uh, powerful um, Christian named Theophilus, on his behalf and for him, Dr. Luke embarks on what amounts to a really extensive investigation. He wants to seek out true eyewitnesses in order to put together what he calls an accurate historical account of all that Jesus did up until his death and all that he continued to do through his spirit after his resurrection. That's your two volume set. And it's important for us to remember because I think sometimes in the world of storytelling, in the world of just, you know, amazing movies and Netflix, we kind of forget what is true and what is fiction. The Christian faith is rooted in real men and women in real history, in real places, at real times, who observed real events. And the Apostle John, right, Jesus' best friend, kind of even back then was trying to make that point because even 20, 30 years after the events, people are wondering, is this made up? Is this like just fiction? Is this myth? And so even the Apostle John in his epistle wrote, that which was from the beginning, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have, I'm sorry, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Multiple times, what we've seen, what we've heard, what we've touched, that these are real events in real time, not unbelievable myths, not fantastic fables, but believable, real testimonies. The Acts of the Apostles is what amounts to the first history of Christianity. Acts is the first defense of Christianity. And most importantly, Acts is the first witness of the first witnesses to Christianity. 
Some people have attempted to debunk the history that Luke has written, and some of them, ironically, became believers after those endeavors. He is a fantastic historian by all accounts. The Acts of the Apostle is the definitive historical account of a very simple truth, and that is it shows us how the first believers really understood the mission that Jesus left them to accomplish on earth. Like, how did they understand the Great Commission? What did, how did they understand what Jesus wanted them to do? Acts is the first kind of explanation of what that was. It reveals that they are witnesses with a message and a power and a promise that goes with it. Now, it's important to understand that Acts is not just some old, dead history book reporting what yesterday's witnesses did. It's a living guidebook instructing what today's witnesses are supposed to do. What we're supposed to do. That said, we have this book titled The Acts of the Apostles, which is uh, certainly a title that has become historical. But as you read different scholars and different people, you realize that may not be the best title that it could have. Because as you read through the Acts of the Apostles is um, not a book about men. Just as the Bible is not a book about men or women. It's a book about God. And so the Acts of the Apostles, theologically, is probably better understood as the Acts of the Holy Spirit. What the Holy Spirit did through broken, weak, foolish men and women, what the Holy Spirit was able to accomplish despite, if you will, sinful people. Essentially, Acts is a witness to how God makes disciples, how God builds His church, how God establishes His kingdom through His people who proclaim His truth. But as we read in the very beginning of Acts, it is the second account. Right? There was a first account. There was a witness that is to be witnessed. That first few verses says, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day... No, that's sorry. We're still in Acts. Until the day in which he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen, he presented himself alive to them after his sufferings by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So the first book in Acts that he's referencing is the Gospel of Luke. So if you turn back to the Gospel of Luke, you're going to see it starts very similar to the book of Acts. Here's what it says. Luke chapter 1, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you most excellent Theophilus, same dude, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. 
So Luke is writing so that this dude named Theophilus has certainty about what he has been taught about the history of the Christian faith. And the first book was about everything that Jesus had began to do and teach. And the second book is him continuing in that way or what Jesus continued to do. And so as we think about Luke for a second, Luke is like us. Luke did not witness the events himself. None of them. He never met Jesus. He never saw Jesus resurrected. It's possible he saw Jesus crucified, maybe if he was in Jerusalem, but he didn't believe in Jesus at that point. And so he goes and he finds people who experienced it. Eyewitnesses. Everyone from the mother of Jesus, Mary, to his best friend, John, to Paul, who eventually meets Jesus on the road to Damascus. And so we, we talk about being witnesses. Well, we are witnesses of witnesses who witness something. Kind of confusing, I know. But that's what Luke is. That's what we are. That's what most Christians are. As Christians, we are a people who depend on the testimonies of others. That's why they call Christians the people of the book. And while many have their own testimonies, right? We have our own testimonies. Let me tell you what Jesus has done in my life, how he has redeemed and changed me, and those are good. Those stories, those testimonies, those reports of what Jesus has done in your life or in the lives of others are only meaningful because of the testimonies of those who first told us who Jesus was and what he did. Otherwise, they don't make sense. Luke describes that first volume, right, as everything he began to do and teach. And so Jesus was just getting started, and what he is continuing to do is in line with what he did. In other words, if you don't understand the first account, the Gospel of Luke, which records the birth and the life and the death of Jesus, the second account is going to have no meaning for you. And take it into our own lives, right? You have to know who Jesus is. You have to know what he came to do. You have to know what Jesus actually accomplished if you're going to understand what Jesus is doing right now. Like the past informs the present. What he did informs what he is doing now. And the church is powerless. The Christian is powerless without knowing, believing, and living in accord with the first account that Luke wrote, or that Mark wrote, or that John wrote, any of those Gospels. Ignorance means impotence. Apathy is idolatry. If we don't understand, like it, it is essential, it is foundational, the, the work of Jesus, nothing beyond the book of Luke will make sense. We're still in many ways in the book of Acts. The network I was first a part of was called Acts 29. Uh, like, wait, there's no 29 chapters. Do you get what it meant? 28 chapters, the story's continuing. What story? What's the story? The story of Acts? No, the story of Luke. Of what Jesus began to do and what Jesus is continuing to do. If we're going to be passive about knowing the good news, about knowing the gospel, 
Like you ask yourself, do I know the gospel? Can I say the gospel? We have you know, announcements. We kind of give a, a picture of the gospel every Sunday to remind you like you can proclaim the gospel in like less than 60 seconds. You should be able to proclaim the gospel in less than 60 seconds. What Jesus has done for us to bring us back into relationship with God through his death, through his resurrection, like those basic pieces. If you're passive in, in knowing the good news, you're going to be passive in sharing the good news is what Acts is about. And if we are passionate, though, about knowing everything that Jesus did, but knowing who Jesus is, we are going to be passionate about sharing it. And so in other words, where it begins is Luke. It begins with the story of Jesus before we get into the story of what Jesus did through the church. And if you ask yourself, like, why, why am I very excited about telling people about Jesus? Why isn't that like a norm for me? Why, isn't it, why is being a witness such a foreign thing to me except for that one time I was kind of forced to talk about Jesus with that one person because I didn't know what else to say? Why is it not a normal rhythm? I would argue it's because you haven't delved deeply into the truth and the beauty and the glory and the power of the gospel. The book of Acts is a history of a passionate people. So passionate. Like these people were so passionate about the gospel that they actually rejoice at their abuse. They get beaten for witnessing. They're like, yeah! Praise Jesus that we were worthy of being beaten for Him. I don't know if I see that very often in today's culture. These are people who went, I would argue, with joy to their impending deaths. There's something powerful that motivated them. Like, what was it? And so Luke actually tells us both in the beginning of Acts and the end of Luke. If you turn, you were in Luke 1, turn to Luke 24. So it's just like one page over. Well, actually, no, there's John. So go back past John. Luke 24 is the last chapter of Luke. Luke 24 is the story of two men, right? They're all sad sack, leaving Jerusalem. Jesus has died. They're like, what happened? This is horrible. And they're like, <laughs> crying. We can say that now because we know what happened, so we probably wouldn't make fun of them at the time. But they're crying, they're upset, and Jesus comes up like in this secretive way. He's like, hey guys, what's going on? Right? And they're like, what do you mean what's going on? Don't you know, what, what, where have you been? You've been under a rock? Like, what has happened? They're like, and so he begins to talk with them about the, the death that occurred, the crucifixion. And we thought he was going to like raise from the dead. It's been the third day now. We haven't heard. And they hadn't heard that Jesus had risen from the dead, obviously, because Jesus was there. But he's like hiding them. He's like, boo, boo, boo. he's like, you know, not showing them himself. Beginning in verse 36. Let me add one little part. Jesus eventually does reveal himself to him. And these guys are like, that was Jesus. And so they take off and they run to go tell the 11. And in verse 36, Jesus kind of beats them there. He says, as they were talking about these things, right? They start talking about, why, what would you hear? Jesus himself stood among them and said, peace be, he's like, Boo! Jesus shows up, right? 
But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. Like they thought he was just like this aura, this ghost. And he said to him, why are you troubled? Why do you have doubts in your hearts? Right, this is Jesus, resurrected Jesus, sitting with the 11 disciples. And he's there, and they're doubting, like, uh, are we just, like, are you seeing this? Are, you, are we, is this a goat? Like, are we just imagining this? That's kind of legit. We can imagine that happening. And he said to him, Why are you troubled? Why do you doubts rise? See my hands and feet. That it is myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when they had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy, they were marveling. And he said to them, have you anything here to eat? That's just cool, right? Resurrected Jesus comes up and you go like, really? So he's like, he wants a sandwich? Like, that's kind of weird. Like, well, why is Jesus doing that? He wants to show, like, I'm real. I'm really here. Touch me. Hey, can we get some spaghetti up here or something? I don't think that's spaghetti there, but you know, something. Well, it's Rome, Italy, maybe. They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took and he ate it before them. Okay, so these witnesses witnessed something that gave them so much passion, so much hope that they were willing to be abused and die. And so Luke ends volume one the same way he started in volume two, because what does he say? Jesus presented himself alive with many proofs for 40 days. The resurrection of Jesus is what was the primary motivation, the thing that is at the heart of witnessing. Witnessing is primarily about the resurrection. That is the thing that distinguishes Christianity from every other faith, every other conviction. Did Jesus rise from the dead or not? Is Jesus alive or not? Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 15, right? He says he appeared to him, he appeared to him, he appeared to him, he appeared to 500 people at one time, and he appeared lastly to me, he says, and if the resurrection is not true, we are people most to be pitied, but if it is true, it is the thing that makes us passionate. It is the thing that gives us hope beyond death. And so Luke says in the very beginning of Acts that Jesus spent his days giving them proofs, eating, talking, hugging them, teaching them. And then what does he say he taught them most about? Was the kingdom of God. That he's not just living, he's actually ruling the kingdom of God is this idea that you know, God's restoring His rule in all creation. So the King has returned and He is starting through the death and the resurrection of Jesus to reclaim His throne and begin to set everything right by His power. And He says, you're going to help me do this. And as you read in verse 4 of Acts chapter 1, he says that that kingdom power, that kingdom being established is going to come through His people by His Spirit. And he says, while staying with them, He ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait 
for the promise of the Father, which he had said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, are you right now, are you going to restore the kingdom of Israel? So they're kind of misunderstanding what's going to happen here. And Jesus said to him, it's none of your business. Well, it's not for you to know. Times or seasons, the Father is fixed by His own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be My witnesses. And this is the outline for the book of Acts. In Jerusalem, and all Judea, and Samaria, and the ends of the earth, which at that point is Rome. And Acts 28 ends in Rome, and Acts 1 begins in Jerusalem. So the first thing he tells these passionate, excited people, man, he's risen. Let's tell people. Let's go out there and reveal that Rome couldn't keep him down. The Jews, their teachers couldn't keep him down. And he says, I need you to wait. We'll talk about next week what it means to wait on the Lord, especially when you're kind of excited and eager to go. But there's a reason for waiting and the reality is, as much as they may be passionate and excited, they are not ready to fulfill Jesus' mission because they're not equipped for it. Did you know, and this might sound cold, that Jesus doesn't really need us for His mission? But the glory in the, in the just the awesome, He wants us for it. Like there's a lot of other ways I feel like Jesus could have accomplished this mission that may have been more effective by not using us. But he chooses by his will and invites us into this experience that changes us and ultimately changes the world. But he only sends us when we're ready in his eyes. And the baptism of John that they're referring to had prepared the disciples for the kingdom coming, right? The kingdom's at hand. I'm preparing you for the kingdom. But the baptism and the dwelling of the Holy Spirit is that kingdom come. The Holy Spirit didn't come though so that His people would just feel spiritual. It's amazing how flippant we are about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit didn't come just so they could feel or look spiritual. The Holy Spirit is not some tool to be wielded according to our own desires. He is not a force. He is a person. And He is not a man. He is God. And He is not to be directed. He is to be followed. That's who the Holy Spirit is. Now, God the Holy Spirit came so that we could fulfill God's mission. That's really important because we're such self-centered, the universe surrounds me people in all of life. And we believe that the Holy Spirit was given just for us. Thank you for the Holy Spirit. Now I feel spiritual. Now I can accomplish the things I want and God will bless them. The truth is, the Holy Spirit's been given so that you can do His work. The only reason you have the Holy Spirit 
is so that you can accomplish God's work. Now, the disciples are a bit confused about God's mission, but it wasn't probably uh, totally unusual. It's understandable. They were expecting King Jesus to bring this kind of prophesied kingdom to its fullness right now and restore Israel to national independence and throw off Rome. And this is why up until like the evening that Jesus was even arrested, the disciples are arguing who's going to be greatest when his kingdom comes. They're thinking like, yeah, I'm going to sit on the right hand. Like, I'm going to be here. They're arguing like they tangibly believe that on earth. But when Jesus is asked, Lord, are you going to restore the kingdom of Israel? He literally is like, he didn't say no. He pretty much said not yet, and it's none of your business. And he basically says, stop thinking about that. And he turns their attention away from thinking about this final restoration with Jesus in heaven, and he calls them to the work of restoration through Jesus on earth. He says, be witnesses. So if you're wondering, if, if it, there's any confusion, like what, it, what is my purpose in this life? I'm about to reveal it to you. You're to be a witness for Jesus. That's it. Everything else is a bonus. But you are primarily to be a witness for Jesus. So I want you to think about this. I want to think about the fact that if, if you don't do that, if you will, you are either going to be a witness, the thing that God has called you to be, commanded you to be, or you are going to be wandering around without purpose. What do I mean by that? We have a God-given purpose, a reason why we haven't returned to Jesus or He hasn't returned to us. And there are, as I've said before, many good things that we can do in this life, but there is very few things that we must do. To be a witness is to reveal, if you will, to testify to verifiable truth. And it's interesting that with, with, without any kind of divine direction in our lives, without going, okay, this is what I'm supposed to be, we will often waste our lives building all kinds of legacies testifying to what we believe was most important in our lives. But all Christians are called to testify publicly and personally that Jesus died for sins, that Jesus rose from the dead, that Jesus is ruling, that Jesus is returning, that all must repent and turn to Jesus and trust that He died in their place and lived the life they should have, and they'll have eternal life. We all must testify to that with our words and with our deeds. And did you know that in Greek, and I'm not a Greek expert, but as you read, you begin to understand that the word witness and the word martyr is nearly identical. Someone who gives testimony about something they believe to be true, that's witness, and often those people that gave testimony were killed for their faith, for their witness. And so the word witness and martyr became synonymous. And so when you think about the idea of being a witness in your life, 
You have this idea of, in truth, you are going to witness to something or someone. You're going to die, if you will, for something. You're going to pour out your life for something. You're going to spend your money for something. And your life will be characterized, all of our lives will be characterized by devotion to some person, some purpose. And the question is not whether you'll be a witness, but what at your death, your life will have testified to as the most important truth. And I don't say that so that people all go, oh, well, I see what the most important truth is. I say that for this reason. At your death, it will be very clear who or what you were a witness for, primarily. And that will have characterized your whole life because people will already have known it. It's not a matter of like how that impacts the future. I don't necessarily even care about that legacy. It's that what characterized like so what characterizes it right now? Is that like that's my purpose in life? Everything I do, I'm called to witness to Jesus, to declare that he is ruling, that he is reigning, that he is returning. Is that what you see yourself as an identity? Because if not, you're wandering around trying to figure out, well, what am I supposed to do with my life? The only reason you're in a particular job is so you can be a better witness. The only reason you're in a particular family is so you can be a better witness in those places at these times. That is your primary role. So you're either a witness or you're wandering around with, I don't know why I'm here. But the Holy Spirit comes, gives us a job, and then the Spirit gives us power to fulfill the ministry that we've been given. Throughout the Scriptures, and I want you to listen to this carefully because I've been dwelling on this a lot. Throughout the Scriptures, the Holy Spirit's called many things. He's given titles describing his function and the role in our lives. You may have heard some of them. He is the helper, right? He is the comforter. He is the teacher. And we all in our lives at different times like, oh, thank you, Lord, I need a helper. Thank you, Lord, I need a comforter. Thank you, Lord, I need a teacher. But catch this. We should not expect the Spirit to help us, the Spirit to comfort us, or the Spirit to teach us if we are not seeking to fulfill the purpose for which He was actually sent to be witnesses. Like, oh, Spirit, help me. Oh, Spirit, come for me. Oh, Spirit, teach me. Well, if we're not endeavoring to actually fulfill the primary purpose that He is coming, why would we expect those things? We can't complete the mission of God without God, and we are powerless and therefore dependent upon God's power. And you see this in the book of Acts in the most amazing way. These people that devote themselves to being witnesses, but then, like us, they go out and they're like, how's this going to work? And so you explicitly see the Spirit doing the work. It's similar, it reminds me to the battles in Joshua where, where God's just like, just, just put your foot on the battlefield. Just put your foot out there. Just go. I got this. And when Joshua's like, okay, boom, like hailstones come out and take heads off. They're like, whoa, like God's fighting. But you still got to get your foot on the battlefield, right? I will fight for you. Get out there. I don't, I don't know. I'm not strong enough is what we think. 
And as you read the book of Acts, you see a bunch of people who were super weak in themselves, and then the Holy Spirit comes in, and then suddenly they're strong. And it explicitly says all the time, like the book of Acts reveals the power of the Spirit creates opportunities. Paul says more than once, I'm praying that an opportunity, the Spirit leads me here. All the Spirit closed that door and leads me here. The power of the Spirit and revealed in the book of Acts inspires boldness. They were courageous. They were making testimonies before kings and leaders before when they could barely stumble out words. The book of Acts reveals the power of the Spirit to provide those words. The book of Acts reveals the power of the Spirit to actually save people that you never expect to be saved. Roman centurions, tax collectors, rebellious sinners. According to the book of Acts, witnessing comes in many forms as well. We all think that witnessing is, you know, all proclamations are made the same, and it's just me sitting down with one person and telling them about Jesus and them being saved, and all the magic happens. And that's not the only way to witness, at least as you see in the book of Acts. Sometimes witnessing comes from preaching and teaching and proclaiming. And sometimes the witness came for standing for something. Sometimes the witness came for sacrificing things that others weren't sacrificing. Sometimes you witness through loving one another. Sometimes the witness came from serving one another. Sometimes the witness came through leading. Sometimes witnessing came through suffering. Paul, as he is in the Philippian jail, he's like, man, this is horrible. I'm in prison, but you're not going to believe how it's advanced the gospel. And I think all the guards now are saved. Not sure I want to start that ministry, but the Holy Spirit is the one who's doing it. The Holy Spirit's the one who is moving as long as we are endeavoring to actually be His witnesses. He makes it happen. Apart from the Spirit, no matter how great or small a thing we do, our witness has no power. But as we walk in the Spirit, as we depend upon the Spirit, as we actually pray, Holy Spirit, give me words, give me... You're praying for opportunity? I dare you. I dare you, go, just pray this week. Lord, give me an opportunity to share my faith. Careful. Because that doesn't just mean someone comes up, I was wondering if you could tell me about Jesus. Now that might happen that way, but it might come in the form of great suffering and you have an opportunity to stand. Or great opportunity that basically you have an opportunity to deny yourself in the name of Jesus. Like, witnessing comes in all forms. But if you begin to pray and ask, okay, Spirit, open the door. He's like, all right. And then next thing you know, it goes crazy. But there's power there. As we walk in the Spirit, the smallest things we do have the power to preach Jesus. And the fewest words we speak have the power to save. But I think most importantly, and maybe... Most simply, if Jesus has actually commanded us to be witnesses, if we don't, then we're disobedient. Witnessing is a command, not a choice. Sharing your faith, living your faith, suffering for your faith, 
is a command, not a choice. It's not optional. And, and at some point, and many of us have been Christians for a very short amount of time, and some have been for a long amount of time, and I feel like the longer we become Christians, the more passive we become in sharing our faith. And we go, oh, I, I've been on that rodeo before. I went through that season of being excited about Jesus. It's good for you. Way to, way to share your faith. At some point, we have to be honest that our passivity towards our role as witnesses is sinful. And if it's sinful, and if we are and if we're endeavoring to ignore and abdicate that responsibility, we are suffering even if you don't know it because you're not enjoying the blessings that come with actually being what God has called you to be. The reality is you love something more than Jesus, and that's why we don't witness because of the perceived promises that come with that thing. But Luke gives it very clear explanation as to what the angel says, reminding us that there's a promise for witnessing. There's a promise that comes with standing for Jesus, a promise that comes with testifying to Jesus. Notice what he says in verse 9. After telling him, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, you're going to be my witnesses in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Doesn't tell him exactly what that means. Doesn't tell him, by the way, James, you're going to die here in a couple weeks. Doesn't tell him all these bad things are going to happen necessarily as a result of that, but also all these good things that are going to happen. He says, and when they had said these things, they were looking as he lifted up. So you imagine Jesus like suddenly starting to float, right? The cloud took him out of their sight. So they're looking up and he's gone. And they're still looking up. They don't see him. They're still looking up. I don't know how long it was. I feel like it might have been too long because it says while they were gazing into heaven, Gazing, like, not like while they were looking. Gazing. Gazing, right? Gazing into heaven. Two men stood by them in white robes. It's like two guys are there, probably pretty studly dudes. They're like, just looking at them. And he says, men of Galilee, why... Why do you stand looking into heaven? Now, the natural response, like if it had just been a second, would be like, well, well, Jesus just left. I think they had delayed a little bit. This Jesus who was taken up from heaven will come in the same way as you saw him going to heaven. So if you want to know how Jesus is going to return, it's going to be like that. There's going to be clouds. Suddenly Jesus is going to be there. and they're like, Oh my God, Jesus is here. It's not going to be a big guessing game. We're all going to see it. In the end, right, Jesus ascends into heaven, leaves his disciples on the Mount of Olives, and they're staring up at the sky. He disappears, and then they're like, why are you standing there looking? We just ended a series in Peter who says many times, set your mind on the the future hope. Set your mind on the return of Jesus. They're like, okay, how do I do that and not like, okay, wait, So setting your mind on the return of Jesus must not mean looking up at the sky and ignoring what's in front of you and what God has called you to do. Like, we put hope against, like, 
what we're supposed to do here. We're supposed to hope, but the hope's supposed to be inspiring. The hope's supposed to be motivating. The hope is supposed to move us, not just let us stare. It seems like we get paralyzed either by too much sky gazing, waiting for new revelation from the Lord who's already told you what to do, or navel gazing where you're waiting for some kind of self-revelation and inspiration that comes from some other place. Too much sky gazing, too much navel gazing, not enough being witnesses. Jesus has spoken. We are to be His witnesses here, there, everywhere, and we are to be His witnesses as we go, but we're also to go and be His witnesses. It's not just, well, wherever I find myself a witness. It is that, and it's I'm going to intentionally devote my life to testifying to Jesus wherever I go and I'm going to go and do it. Especially to those who have never heard the gospel. And that's going to mean sacrifice. That's going to mean leaving loved ones. That's going to mean abandoning comforts. Our calling comes with a cost, but as I said, it comes with a promise. Jesus is returning. And Jesus Himself said in Matthew 19 that everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for My name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Many who are first will be last and the last will be first. The truth is we're not witnesses because it's costly. And we have put our hope in this world and we know that if we're witnesses in this way, then we're going to lose a lot in this world. But that doesn't matter if there's a new world coming. And that's what Jesus says. That there's a new world coming. Acts as we close, is not a narrative of testimonies to be memorialized. It's a challenge for every generation of witnesses that follow. And Luke was the account, the Gospel Luke, of all that Jesus began to do. But the story continues because Jesus is still working. And Jesus is not done with His disciples as the beginning of Acts tells us. And so His disciples are not done. And because, catch this, Jesus has not yet returned and you haven't returned to Him, you're not done. It would be different if when Jesus saved people, you just disappeared. Right? You ever ask why that is? It's like, that would be kind of cool. Gone. Oh, we had, we had three conversions today, and we lost three people in our church, right? Gone. But the reality is, he le- why does he leave you here? And why hasn't he returned yet? Because there's still more work to do. That being witnessing. It has been 2,000 years and the witness of these disciples has reached us. This testimony that began this little city called Jerusalem on the other side of the world. And it, guess what? Went out of Jerusalem and through Judea and through Samaria to the ends of the earth into Snohomish, Washington. And now in Snohomish, we are to take it to Snohomish 
and then past Snohomish, and then out beyond Snohomish County into the ends of the earth. It's been entrusted to us. The same message. And we have become a people who are fearful. So I'll close with what Jesus says about fear. Because I would argue that the number one reason that you don't share your faith, that you're not public about your faith, that you don't go on that crazy you know, mission trip to go share your faith, whatever it happens to be, is because of fear. You fear losing your reputation. You fear losing your comforts. You fear losing whatever it is. And Jesus tells us this in Matthew chapter 10, beginning in verse 26. It says, Have no fear of them. For nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that not, will not be known. And what I tell you in the dark, say in the light. And what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear Him who can destroy both the soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your Father? Even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. And catch this. So, knowing that, that you ought to fear God above fearing losing anything else, that you ought to trust God knowing He knows how many hairs are on your head. He knows exactly the circumstances you're in and that you will be in. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. And whoever denies me before him, men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. As we go through the book of Acts, my prayer is that we will adopt the archaic, ancient, biblical role of being a witness. That will be a it's not just an evangelistic church. It is a church full of witnesses who believe deeply in the resurrection and return of Jesus Christ and shares that beginning in their homes, wherever they go, and endeavors to go intentionally to share that very truth. Testify Jesus to Jesus in your home. Testify to Jesus at your job. Testify to Jesus at your school. Testify to Jesus in your community and beyond, knowing that Insofar as you testify for Jesus, Jesus testifies for you. Insofar as you testify to Jesus, He's standing there testifying to you. You may lose a lot. You may lose reputation. You may lose everything, but you'll gain eternal life with your Lord, which can't be measured. Let's pray.